0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandroff, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today uh, to welcome back into our virtual studio uh, Matthew Goodman from CSIS. Matthew is the senior vice president, senior advisor for Asian economics, and he also holds the Simon chair in political economy at CSIS. Uh, Matthew has served in both the private sector at Goldman Sachs and the Albright Stonebridge Group and has also held a number of significant roles in the public sector, including early in his career as an international economist at the U.S. Treasury Department and at the Tokyo Embassy. So today I wanted to uh, welcome uh, Matt into the studio to kind of uh, review with him his perspective uh, on the Osaka G20 summit. Uh, Matt was in Japan just prior to the summit. Um, I wanted to particularly talk to Matt about the American view of the summit now that we've completed uh, it and have had a, time, had a short time to at least begin to assess its um, uh, importance, what was achieved What obviously was not achieved. This, of course, is uh, another in the special effort to review uh, the um, uh, G20 summit from Osaka. This is Summit Dialogue, Episode 12, an interview with Matt uh, on the Japanese G20. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you back, actually, uh, Matt, uh, to, my, <laughs> to the virtual studio to talk about the Osaka Summit, the G20 Summit, which took place very recently, June 28th and 29th. Are you
1: with us? I am. Thanks, Alan. Good to be with you.
0: Ah, great. Okay, so um, let me start with kind of a big picture question, which is it's hard to put the summit in, in context um, you yourself focused in a recent uh, CSIS piece on what a number of us might regard, and this is not a pejorative, but on the kind of mid-level issues. Uh, and I want to go there in just a moment. But uh, first, I want to examine with you what we saw in and around Os- uh, Osaka, the G20 summit. There were a series of Trump events. His meeting with uh, China's Xi Jinping over the U.S.-China trade war, uh, and what appeared to be, appears to be a truce, though <clears throat> the details aren't very aren't very strong. Um, his encounters, that is Trump's encounters with Vladimir Putin, that got quite a quite a press view. Uh, the breakfast with the Saudi Crown Prince, and of course the meeting with uh, Kim Jong Un. Um, at uh, Korea's DMZ uh, just after completion of the summit. So, you know, what, what was Trump attempting to do in all of this?
1: Well, um, as I said in that same piece, you know these summits are always really two separate events. There's what goes on in the actual meeting room, and we can talk about that. But then there's what goes on in the hallways and on the margins of the meetings, and that's what's always uh, what's uh, the press is tends to be more interested in. Um, and yes, as you say, there were a few important encounters or significant ones on the on the uh, fringes of this event. Uh, the one with uh, Xi Jinping, China's president, was the one that certainly I was most focused on, and a lot. Of people here in Washington. As you say, they did uh, reach some kind of truce. And again, we can talk about that. Um, and then he met with those uh, various, um, as you might call, strongmen. Um, and I think in terms of you know what Trump's trying to achieve, I mean, it's always hard to know exactly what he's trying to achieve. I think it's largely um, of the moment. I mean, he, he I think, was looking for um, headlines and, and focus on uh, his sort of uh, high level diplomacy um, he likes some of these um, so called strong men he likes interacting with them um, and so I think he wanted to make a point that that's his preference uh, to, to spend time with these, uh, these people um, he had a particular reason to talk to Chinese President Xi because we were on and maybe still are on a, a, a somewhat uh, dangerous and damaging path of uh, trade conflict, and and they needed to talk about that. So that was probably, in terms of specific things, he kind of needed to do there. That was that was certainly one of them.
0: That that was his his, his most uh, evident
1: um, interaction. But what's you know, kind of what was the result of all of that? Well, I think I mean, he. Um, as he said, was on a kind of unsustainable path with China in that we were just um, escalating uh, tariffs and counter-tariffs. Uh, he had threatened um, uh, new tariffs on another $300 billion, really the remaining $300 billion of bilateral trade, having already put uh, 25% tariffs on $250 billion worth of Chinese imports into the U.S. Um, and it wasn't clear, you know, where that was going to take us. Um, and there was clearly a need, I think, for the two leaders to speak about that. And, you know, what they apparently agreed to, as you said, without a lot of detail, was some kind of ceasefire or truce under which the two sides uh, negotiating teams would get back together and try to uh, continue to uh, the, the negotiations that they had suspended mm-hmm. in early May to try to reach a deal on some of the structural issues. But meanwhile, what he actually talked about, President Trump, that is, publicly, was um, sort of the the narrowest parts of the deal uh, and, and somewhat controversial uh, parts, which were Uh, some kind of large purchase by China of American exports, um, presumably mostly agricultural products, unspecified amounts, but numbers like a trillion dollars have been thrown around in the past. Um, You know, questions about that. Is that a real number? Um, Is is that anything different from what China would have been buying anyway? Um, You know, does that really get to the underlying structural issues in our relationship? Um, And then the other thing he talked about was – was relaxing some of the, uh, the restrictions he had um, proposed putting on a certain gi- Chinese company, Huawei, the telecommunications giant. Um, and he right. actually talked about, you know, uh, his um, having to decided to suspend uh, at least some of the actions against Huawei specifically you know their inclusion on the entity list, uh, which would uh, prevent um, American companies from supplying inputs to Huawei um, products and uh, you know that is a controversial step and got quite a lot of attention and uh, pushback and blowback here in Washington and again, happy to talk a little more about that if you want to pursue that.
0: Yeah, no, I wanted to raise that with you because my understanding is Trump was saying, well, I'm not prepared to take you off the entity list until the very end of this process
1: well it isn't it isn't clear exactly um you know what happens when um but he did the bottom line <laughs> is what was controversial here in washington and he got blowback from you know prominent senators like marco, marco rubio of florida uh, that this would be catastrophic if he uh, did what he broadly said he was going to do which was to as part of a trade negotiation uh to back off on some of the Restrictions that had been proposed to deal with a national security ostensibly a national security problem with Huawei, uh, which was that you know our supply of of products and services to Huawei was somehow putting our national security at risk that was the ostensible reason for putting them on the entity list um, and he 's now talking about taking them off uh, on the basis of of a trade deal and that was uh, you know that that was that is very controversial here. Um, and um, not, you know, normal in terms of how you approach national security issues. hmm
0: Well, then the, the, the question that arises you know, beyond that is there are, you know, a series of kind of key, for lack of a better term, a number of us have referred to the kind of top-tier issues. Clearly, the trade dispute with um, uh, China is, uh, is a key top-tier issue. Um, but then beyond that, you know, we've got a more, more generally progress in a, in a rules-based trade order and, in addition, WTO uh, reform. They're kind of a package there, I suppose. And then um, uh, there is this, uh, you know, statements or statement on climate change. So these are the big issues you've, you've kind of discussed with us a little bit on the uh, China U.S. front. But, uh, you know, uh, where did we go or where did they go, the G20 go, in terms of a rules-based trade order and WTO reform?
1: Well, if you're a glass-half-full type of person, as I am, um, I think you can see some hopeful uh, signs in what the G20 leaders said about trade. First of all, uh, the discussion of trade was moved up from paragraph 27 in the Buenos Aires communique to paragraph 8, which uh, in communique-watching uh, terms is is a uh, significant uh, improvement. Uh, secondly, they added three or four things, I think four things, to the language that had been in the Buenos Aires declaration about trade. Uh, first of all, they added this sentence about um, trade uh, needing to be fair, free fair, reciprocal, non-discriminatory, a very, bunch of other adjectives. Um not quite sure what the value of all that was, but at the end of that sentence they said, you know, and we will strive to keep our markets open. So that's, you know, that's that's helpful. Uh okay. but just just words. And the other three things they added are a little more significant. They uh I- included a reference to the uh, next big WTO ministerial in Kazakhstan next June 2020 um, and and referencing that was useful it didn't quite say that's the deadline for WTO reform, but it sort of implied that and that's useful um, Then they also mentioned what area of reform they were particularly interested in leaders, which was the functioning of the dispute settlement uh, mechanism. And that is, um, that's a big deal to mention that because everybody agrees, I think, in different ways that the dispute settlement mechanism is not working perfectly. And so identifying that as the central area for reform, I think, was significant and useful. Um, and then finally, they have a sentence in there that was new about uh, bilateral and regional uh, trade agreements being, um, uh, being, uh, complementary to the WTO yeah. system, as long as they're WTO consistent, and that again is significant because there are a lot of these deals going around, and um, and and acknowledgement that they are useful. Um, to the trade uh, system is is, is is positive. So what what I often say about those things, yeah, there are words on a piece of paper and my sort of half-joking point about moving up the paragraph is only, only a G20 wonk would really focus on something like that. But the serious point is that, you know, these are the leaders of 85% of the global economy. And if they say that, you know, that ministerial next June is an important deadline, or they say that, you know, regional FTA are, you know, are worthwhile pursuing as long as they're WTO consistent. Those things are useful in terms of setting an agenda um, or they say the dispute settlement mechanism needs to be fixed. That then drives the lower levels of government in all these countries to be forced to work together to address those things. And so now you've got, you know, the possibility for trade officials um, in the U.S. or in Canada or in China or other places, to say, "Well, this is what our leader said they want us to get done," and so we need to get on it. And um, it's that has useful, practical um, purposes in international diplomacy. So, I I, I don't dismiss uh, the words on the paper; they are that, but but they do set an agenda, and I think that that's useful.
0: Okay, um, <clears throat> and maybe maybe it's worthwhile then you know kind of gathering in the, the, the kind of third major uh, or top tier issue and that's uh, climate change what did you make of that now, obviously there are two paragraphs in the uh, <clears throat> leaders declaration paragraph 35 and paragraph 36 and what did you make of that
1: before I answer that, can I just add one more thing about the um, about the trade agenda which you know you can uh, take or leave but uh, of course you know what was disappointing about the trade uh, language is that it was not uh, it did not include the language that was in the original G20 leader's statement back in 2008 in Washington and in every uh, communique after that until Buenos Aires last December, which was a a commitment not to uh, move down the path of protectionism. And I think the removal of that was not a good thing. And, and, you know, it reflected – um, frankly, the, 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 the U.S. being in a different place on trade today than it was in 2008. Um, the Trump administration has a very different perspective on trade. And I think that's, you know, that's worrisome. And to your bigger point about the, uh, you know, the, the global order and the trading order in particular, uh, you know, these are troubling, uh, points that, that indicate we've still got a lot of work to do, notwithstanding my sort of glass half full analysis of some of the specific elements of the communique.
0: Although it's fair to say, and you, you pointed it out, that you know the the dropping of that uh, phrase on protection, uh, you know, didn't occur here in, in Osaka. It already occurred in Argentina, and, and but that doesn't make it. Better because it happened earlier, but nevertheless. No, I, I think you know this, the
1: point in both cases is that you know bigger picture here. There's a real divide that didn't used to exist. I mean, everybody honored this protectionism um, pledge and the breach, but uh, but in sort of relatively small ways. There, there's now, unlike 2008 nine. There's a fundamental. Uh, difference of view about trade uh, that really is the U.S. view versus everybody else's um, in, uh, in sort of uh, – in kind of broad approach and, and, and thinking about trade. And so that's worrisome and troubling for the future of the order um, in addition to all of the actual de facto protectionism that one sees, um, you know, starting in the U.S., but but sure. elsewhere in the world as well. Um, and so, so that's the bigger point, I think, um, that is worrisome.
0: Fair enough. And maybe, I mean, it might be valuable. How how do you characterize uh, this administration's um, view on trade?
1: Well, I mean, you know, President Trump has had a very consistent view on this issue for 30-plus years now. There's really no other policy issue on which he's had such a deep and consistent view, uh, which is that um, the U.S. is being ripped off in the global trading system. By the way, particularly by allies, ungrateful allies like Canada and um, and uh, NATO allies in Japan and others – who uh, who we defend, uh, but who then rip us off on trade. I mean, that's sort of in an elevator uh, summary what the Trump view of the world is. And so uh, this is not surprising that that he's brought this view to this forum, the G20, uh, since his first uh, encounter there in 2017. And, you know, it's very much part of his um, policy toolkit. He's been using tariffs um, uh, to, uh, to, you know, punish friends and... Allies and adversaries alike, uh, and um, you know, I think that is a very different and new thing from uh, what American uh, administrations and, and leaders have have uh, done in the past, or have at least uh, espoused in the past. We've we've always been uh, in our in our rhetoric very supportive of, of deeper, uh, freer trade, and um, and you know, frankly, we haven't used in that sort of in this sort of broad blunderbuss way. Um, uh, tariffs as a, as a tool, uh, particularly ones that are violative of our international obligations in the WTO. So this is very different, and and uh, does put us in a very different place from where Americans have been, American governments have been before in these forums, uh, but also you know now from where other countries are. Although again, every country, including Canada and uh, you know China and and others, uh, violate you know this or honor this protectionism pledge in the breach. But uh, but the U.S. is is now doing it you know sort of rhetorically and in broad based policy terms as well, and that's different.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, and you do and you point out that his view going back decades relates to how the United States has been ripped off by its allies. But I mean, his most evident effort has been ultimately against China um, in terms of in terms of, you know, the use of the of, of forms of a trade policy, which we have not seen really since the reforms in the WTO. Uh, that is from the GATT to the WTO, right? So the national security provisions of 232, the you know, the variant. We'd almost forgotten what these things were because there was a presumption of um, WTO consistency among all the major players, and that now is not clear any longer, right? That's right. I mean, there
1: um, there had been talk even before um, President Trump was president among some trade policy experts here in Washington about use of targeted tools to get at the China problem, frankly um and you know i was involved in some of those conversations about could we use some of those old provisions and nobody remembered 232 that that one you'd have you'd have to look pretty hard to find an honest uh trade trade person who would admit that they remembered what the heck that was um but uh but 301 people remembered i remember it um from the 80s dealing with japan and and there were some sort of conversations going on about you know outside the box could we Use this tool in a targeted way, uh, in a way that would not violate our WTO obligations. As you say, the the provision being unilateral and involving, um, you know, unilateral sanctions like raising uh, tariff bindings um, was – was in violation of the WTO and was something that was constrained and wasn't constrained before 95 and was after by the WTO. But there was some creative thinking going into whether one could use it in a way, maybe not with tariffs, but with other measures in a way that was consistent with the WTO. So this was being talked about, but, but the use of 301 in such a broad blunderbuss sort of way uh, is new and different and unique to the Trump administration, and, and certainly the use of of dusted off provisions like Section Two Thirty Two uh, of a you know of a of a Cold War um provision were really actually predates World War Two actually, but but it was used uh, in the in last really in the Cold War uh, was something uh, that was was new and different.
0: Well, you know, so let's try to put this then this picture uh, in in some frame, but let's, before we get there, let's, let's take a look at the climate provision. What did, what did you make, uh, uh, the declaration, uh, as it, as it came out, uh, with respect to climate change?
1: Well, this is not my personal area of expertise, but I can sort of comment on a higher level that, that, uh, you know, you essentially seem to have had, uh, this kind of unstoppable force and an immovable object here um, where, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, the Trump administration clearly didn't want to sign on to language that endorsed the Paris accord, an accord from which the United States had pulled out. Uh, early in the Trump uh, administration, and so they weren't going to accept, you know, kind of common language um, that that spoke about Paris and trying to achieve the Paris objectives. On the other hand, you had President Macron of France saying that he would not sign on to any communique that didn't mention uh Paris and those objectives and so uh so you had sort of these um, um irreconcilable differences and the only way to reconcile them was to do what had been done in the past which was to make it a 19 minus 1 or 20 minus 1 or 19 plus 1 uh outcome where you have you know one paragraph talking about the 19 of us who believe in Paris and are committed to the objectives and the other one of us that has a different view, the United States, and um, you know, we'll do other things broadly in the area of uh, trying to create greater energy efficiency and clean up the air and so forth. But isn't uh, we aren't going to commit specifically to you know to that accord? Um, and so that that uh, that was the only way that they could get a communique out that that uh, both uh, Trump and Macron and everybody else would sign on to.
0: it's my understanding, and you may know better than I. Um, that, in fact, Japan was tried very hard, that is Prime Minister uh, Abe, tried very hard to have one paragraph, right? A very watered down uh, one paragraph. And, and that's when the Europeans, and in particular, as you point out, um, Emmanuel Macron just, you know, put in uh, the digs there. He wasn't prepared uh, to accept something like that. And at the end of the day, they had to ultimately agree on two paragraphs, notwithstanding the preference of uh, prime minister. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I understand that was the dynamic as well. Uh, But, you know, in a way I think it's actually um, salutary to have uh, this laid out so explicitly that the U S is in a different place. I mean, I think it, um, you know, it's a it's a statement of of where the U.S. government is today, um, or at least a, a part of the U.S. government, because there are lots of people, I think, in the U.S. government who aren't comfortable with this position. But it is the it's the bosses, you know, the president's own view. So um so I think, um you know, it's helpful to have that highlighted explicitly rather than trying to water it down and paper it over. So I I'm in that sense, not sort of troubled by this outcome. But obviously, in the bigger sense, uh, this is a, uh, you know, climate change is obviously a, uh, you know, it's a compelling issue that requires uh, international coordination, if any issue does. And um, and it's one that I think most uh, people, you know, minus a handful here in the U.S. Uh, would agree is something that we're going to have to have an international uh, not only conversation about, but set of disciplines of some kind. And so so in that sense, it's it's deeply troubling that we couldn't get international agreement.
0: Right. So, so a stark kind of uh, division here, which does reflect, you know, the, I suppose, for lack of a better term, the America first kind of perspective that Trump has brought uh, to parts of, if not all, of American foreign policy um, I wanted to just reference for you um, Shiro Armstrong, who's the editor of uh, East Asia Forum. And right after the summit, he wrote a piece, which was pretty downbeat, actually. Um, and what not so much the glass out full, for sure. He said, the Osaka G20 summit may yet be remembered in history as the moment that the global rules-based order was lost. There was no mention of a rules-based order in the communique, the uncertainty that has clouded the global economy over the past few years is a child's play compared uh, with what could come now without a major effort by middle powers to evoke com- uh, catastrophe. I kind of wanted to get your reaction to that, which indeed is pretty downbeat.
1: Well, I um I know and and uh, respect Shiro and and think, you know, he makes a reasonable case there that 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 there was um a lot missing and a lot troubling in in that outcome. I'm not quite sure I'd be quite so dramatic for several reasons. I mean, one I think that, uh, you know, there were uh, signs of all this long before Osaka, so I wouldn't blame it all on Japan or Osaka. I think I think this was um, – there were plenty of straws in the wind before this event. Um, and then, as I say, you know, I'm also glass half full on some of the specific outcomes that were positive and And I think in the current environment, you know, I would not – downplay some of those, and maybe we'll talk about a couple of those. But um, the other thing is that he also – he weaved a couple of other things in there that are interesting. Um, you know, the uncertainty about the global economy. I mean, I, let's lest we forget, the G20 is actually about um, strong, sustainable balance and inclusive growth. I mean, that's really why it came together as a leaders' forum in uh, 2008 to deal with, you know, a sort of existential uh, threat to that objective. Um, it only coined that phrase um, the following year, but 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 the notion of, of of growth is is really what the G20 is about, and um, that's what we should ultimately actually first and foremost when you talk about top tier issues. I think that's the first one we should look at: is did it advance the gro- global growth agenda? And you know, it doesn't get very strong marks. At least it, it endorsed that 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 mantra of strong, sustainable, balanced, inclusive growth, um with each of those adjectives being significant. Um, and, you know, it talked about, you know, working together in fiscal and monetary policy and so forth, or or consistently at least. But beyond that, not a lot of specifics. So that's a little disappointing. Uh, but not unprecedented. I mean, really, since the Toronto Summit in 2010, we've had uh, little kind of positive contribution to the growth agenda. That's that, or th- that's a broad statement. I would say that that we have not had the same, you know, sense of common purpose to take on the global growth agenda that we had uh, in the first uh, three three summits. Um, so, so I'd say that's another interesting part about Churro's uh, quote there. And then his mention of middle powers, maybe you were going to ask about this, but um, I think that's interesting because he it's a bit of a non sequitur. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, he says, you know, there's sort of catastrophe uh, looming here because there's no rules-based order, and then he sort of jumps to the middle powers have to jump in. That's a very interesting notion, presumably by middle powers. He includes Canada, although Canada would probably itself uh, consider itself as a G7 country, you know, one of the leading economies um, of the world. Um, and then the middle powers are often referred to as the MICTA group, you know, the Mexico, right. Indonesia, Korea, Turkey, and Australia. So some combination of those countries is presumably who he was alluding to. And I agree that those countries, there are each roughly trillion and a half dollar economies, you know, do have a very important role individually and collectively in uh, they t- typically been uh, supportive or even strong champions of like Canada of the global rules based order. Um, and so I think it's useful if they can get together um, and try to, um, you know, knock some common sense into the big guys. Uh, but I'm also a little skeptical that uh, that's going to be sufficient. In other words, it may be important and even necessary, but uh, but without the U.S. and China and Europe uh, and Japan. Really being on board with an agenda, a common agenda here. It's going to be very hard, I think, to change this fundamental dynamic of of you know slow and and risk prone growth and uh, and uh, sort of uh, more importantly, maybe or more broadly, uh, you know, uncertainty about the future of the global rules based order.
0: Hmm. Uh, well, it's, it's you know, and and there is confusion because you know you look at some of our colleagues. Uh, I'll, I'll simply mention one, uh, Roland Paris, who wrote a brief uh, in Chatham House not that long ago. Um, I'm not quite clear who the other side is. If, if it, the major powers are, are, you know, not part of this um, collective effort, then who are the rest? I mean, I think it, it, it may come down to, you know, some of the large emerging market uh, countries. Uh, India, Indonesia, you know, folks like that, and you know it it certainly you know on on climate change it has certainly be driven um, um, by Europe or parts of Europe. certainly uh, our friend uh, Chancellor Merkel uh, drove it at, in Hamburg when it came to the first effort to you know kind of nail down the Paris agreement. And irreversible comes into play in 2017, notwithstanding the United States uh, would not sign on to it. And, uh, you know, apparently the French um, and President Macron have equally pressed forward on this issue. So it may be that there's a lot more variety there than meets uh, meets the eye. That, you know, that we have, there's no specific and it can shift and that, there, you know, different Subject matter, different countries may, in fact, may take the lead. Now, whether or I take it your view is well, yeah, that's all very nice, but at the end of the day, without you know the big boys. It's just not gonna. It's not gonna move forward.
1: Well, I mean, I do think first of all that there are lots of voices in the G20, and there are different sort of coalitions that form around different issues. Um, and I think I've written about this that it's not so. It's not a rigid group of. At least it wasn't. I may have some of these lines have hardened a bit maybe since I wrote about this two or three years ago. But um, you know, you you have you have sort of essentially the G7. You have kind of three, three and a half groups in the G20, right? You have the G7, you have the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and then you have the MICTA countries. And then on top of those, you have, what, Saudi Arabia and Argentina. I think that's the... Um, that's the that's the group. And so, um, you know, I made a case that they're not sort of hard caucuses there that people sort of mix and match depending on the issues across those lines. I think there is still some of that dynamic, although, as I say, the lines may have hardened a bit. Um, and I think all of those groups need to chip in and they each have a role to play. But I also do think at the end of the day... You know, um, at the end of the day, if the United States and China and Europe and, you know, Japan, uh, the biggest – four biggest, you know, countries or blocks in the group cannot agree um, on something, it's probably not going to happen. Um, and on the other hand, if they do agree, then uh, then others will come along. So, I think that is just a reality of this, um, of this forum, but also more broadly of the global sort of power structure. Um, in the global economy.
0: Well, let me make one reference here um, to uh, well, uh, another subject, which was data and, uh, uh, and Japan in particular. Clearly, pr- uh, Prime Minister Abe was quite intent on trying to move forward on digital data. Uh, you know, and it, it's not... Some would argue that, you know, he really wasn't able to make much headway. But nevertheless, apparently... On the, on the digital uh, front, uh, you know, uh, data-free flows with trust, he apparently had, the, had won the support of 17 of the 20, which strikes me as, you know, kind of beginning to put together that necessary uh, group, because it included China, as a matter of fact, um, that would move the yardsticks, if not obviously this time around, potentially in the future.
1: Right. And, you know, Abe had set the bar pretty high for himself uh, in his speech in Davos back in January when he said he wanted the Osaka G20 summit to be remembered as the one at which well, he said data governance started. He meant, I think, a conversation about data governance started, um, and and that was um, perhaps a little too high to make this the sort of the the watershed moment on this. But you know, to his credit, he did get that term "data free flow with trust," which was his slightly clunky uh, phrase to indicate you know that that fr- data should flow freely in principle, of course, subject to appropriate and sensible. Privacy and security standards. I think that's what he means by trust. Uh, although one of the re- one of the reasons I think he couldn't get agreement uh, from the broader group on all of this was that uh, there are different interpretations of trust, and and uh, you know obviously even the U.S. I think was a little suspicious about the term as to what it meant, um, and certainly others were. Uh, you know, just to, for the record, I mean, he got two different things on on data issues. Um, he got – the thing you mentioned was a side agreement, a, a, a leader's statement, uh, Osaka Declaration on, on Digital Economy, I think it's called, um, which was uh, something that 17 members, I think all but India, Indonesia, and South Africa, signed on to. Um, and, then, and then a few others signed on as well, Vietnam and Singapore and a couple of others. Um which basically, you know, established that broad principle about data free flow with trust, um, and then it yep. talked about more specifically working together in the WTO. Uh, to move forward the e-commerce negotiations um, as you said China signed on to that and so that's you know that's uh, interesting and, and potentially constructive and then in the body of the communique itself he also got a section called you know data free flow with trust or something uh, with those words in it and, and a paragraph about um, about cross-border flows of data and information ideas um, and um, and and so you know and then again a reference to working on e- e-commerce. So I think um, they, you know, I'd say he got, you know, he got it on the agenda. And again, as I said earlier, uh, the G20 has an important role in setting a global agenda. and This will allow uh, people who in the Japanese bureaucracy or others who want to push these issues forward, it gives them something to work with. Um, and they can refer back to the leader's uh, commitment to this. So I, um, you know, I, again, glass half full, think that this is, um, you know, this is useful, if not quite all of what Prime Minister Abe was hoping for.
0: <laughs> Probably not. Uh, and for those who were really interested in seeing the the wording, you could go to, uh, you were referencing paragraph 11, which is the one on the data-free flows with trust. Um, so, yeah, clearly, um, you know, he could look to that as, you know, some advance and often these issues take some time before you get that kind of collective or the consensus necessary to move things forward. Let me ask you just a couple other things uh, in kind of the mid-tier area, which is um, I um we noted uh, when we were looking through the declaration that in paragraphs 10, 12, 27, 28 and 34, There's a reference, there is a a solid reference to the Sustainable Development Goals, um, the SDGs. Has the United States simply decided to give up on uh, because it opposed the use of that terminology in the past?
1: Yeah. Well... Um, and he, including in the G20 finance minister's uh, communique right. earlier in June, actually, um, uh, there was sort of fudge language on, on that set of issues. Look, I mean, I think the way I answer that is I think there are two Trump administrations um, who are coming to the table here. Uh, there's there's the president himself and, and um, you know, some of his close-in uh, advisors and aides who are uh, focused on a few issues they want to really make an impact on. And then there's the rest of the administration that's sort of trying to carry on with um, work as usual on a lot of um, issues below the level of interest of the president and i think this may be one of those in that category where there are a lot of people in the us government whether at the state department or the treasury department or or USAID who who understand uh, the importance of an international conversation about development and and uh, specifically bringing uh to bear some of the Uh, some of the um, objectives and the tools uh, discussed in the SDGs. And so, you know, referring to that may reflect that sort of lower level, um, but – quite high level um, uh, interest in those issues. Um, whereas, you know, the president's focus on other things and maybe this wasn't worth uh, fighting, unlike climate, which I think, you know, he has a, a clear uh, position on or trade or, you know, other things that really, really um, rise to his level. So, I, I would explain it more by that than as some sort of, um, you know, conversion uh, in, in U.S. perspective. It's more... You know, there's some issues the president really cares about, other ones that he doesn't, and this may be in that category. Okay.
0: Uh, how about, uh, though, uh, paragraph 14? There is an agreement to complete the IMF quota reform, which he has certainly given note to in the past, or his close-in advisors have. Uh, by the end of 2019... Um, so there's a specific kind of endpoint that's been identified. Is this a change in U.S. uh, position?
1: Well, again, I'd sort of put that in the same category. I think there are certain parts of the U.S. government, particularly at the U.S. Treasury Department in this case, who, um, you know, who understand the importance of moving that agenda forward with um, the IMF. And um, and maybe a little softening among other parts of the U.S. government and the White House because of an understanding that um, the IMF is going to be needed to come in as a lender of de facto last resort um, in a lot of hairy situations around the world. And if the IMF isn't there, then, you know, somebody else is going to step up and it's probably going to be China. And that's not um, particularly appealing to um, to the White House, and so there's maybe a tolerance for this. But again, I wouldn't put too much weight on that. It may be just this is one that was sort of below the radar screen of of the president and his close-in people, and they said, "Well, what the heck? If others really want this, we can live with it." I, I don't mean to trivialize it, but I think it, there may have been an element of that here. Okay,
0: okay. Well, let's uh, you know, coming to the end of our time, I wanted uh, to come back. To the kind of uh, the, the big picture, particularly on the U.S. side with respect to China, what is happening here? Uh, is, is what is the uh, Trump administration trying to accomplish? You've talked a bit about that. Is this part of a strategy for a so-called new Cold War front, which you know it has been, from our colleagues, many many of our colleagues, anyhow, trashed as not being uh, relevant? But what? Does the U.S. see itself, particularly on the technology front, also on the trade front, but particularly on the technology front, as shifting towards a decoupling between China and and the United States with respect to uh, technology, technology flows?
1: Is that where this administration is trying to go? Well, there's a big, uh, hot debate about that right now in Washington. And, um, and I don't think there's an absolutely clear answer as to what the plan is or what, you know, who supports what elements of this plan. Uh, but broadly speaking, I think that there was a view, there is a view emerging here that, especially since the events of early May when we suspended the trade talks, uh, moved ahead with um, the increase of tariffs and threatened, you know, broader tariffs against China, combined with the actions against Huawei – um, where we both, um, you know, issued an ex- – president issued an executive order saying that, you know, um, uh, Huawei can't – well, it didn't mention Huawei explicitly, but it said, you know, telecommunications companies like uh, – they, they meant Huawei uh, shouldn't supply in or can't supply into the U.S. Um, uh, critical network. Um, that was one thing. And the other thing was the entity list um, uh, saying that, you right. know, U.S. suppliers can't supply to Huawei. Um, I think with all of those events um, in early May, I think that that prompted a uh, certainly a a conversation set of questions about whether we are now on a new path, because really for 40 years, and I would include the Trump administration up to that point uh, as squarely on that path, we've been on a path of of engagement with China, of trying to deepen our economic relationship, sure, trying to shape China's decisions and its behavior. Um, and certainly, the Trump approach was was different in tone and tactics, but I'd say broadly consistent with the notion of trying to, you know, trying to pull them more deeply into a rules-based order and uh, get them to, you know, to sort of shape up, as it were. I mean, I think that was broadly what eight, nine administrations have done since the early 70s. Um, And, you know, the question now is, have we gone off on a new path and are we headed down towards a path of decoupling of our economies or parts of our economies? Um, or uh, even, you know, headed into some kind of Cold War. Of course, you quickly, you know, dismiss that term itself in a narrow sense because obviously we have a very different relationship with China than we did with the Soviet Union. But I, I would say that I think the jury's still out on that fundamental question of whether we're on a new path. I think there are certain people who want to go that that way, uh, close into the administration and in the national security community. Uh, I would say, actually, the weight of people, I mean, the bulk of people here in Washington do not believe that we should be decoupling, let alone heading into a cold or, God forbid, hot war uh, with China. I'd say that's the majority view here. But some people in very important places, including the White House and the national security world, um, do feel we need to be heading off in that new direction. Um, And I think, you know, that is um, still, I think, being debated. And I don't think we've come to a conclusion. I do do think, you know— it's also unarguable that that we have taken certain actions to decouple in certain areas as i mentioned in telecommunications i think there's definitely a uh you know an effort to decouple us f- from Interdependence with that specific company, Huawei, and then in the technol- technology area more broadly, you know, there are a number of things that are being done to control uh, critical technologies, uh, strengthening of our investment screening process, the so-called CFIUS process, um, tightening our export control regime, um, uh, uh, pursuing um Uh, investigations of uh, foreign researchers and research collaboration efforts, uh, which is being done by the FBI and and others, um, which is, I think, part of this same story of technology control. And and those things – you know, may suggest that there is a an actual move towards uh, – well, a deliberate move towards decoupling our technological interdependence. And whether that ends up remaining the policy or sustainable or whether, you know, a new administration coming in in 2021 will pursue that or not, it may create its own dynamic where, where you know, China tries to become more inter- independent – um, on technology, and you know our suppliers look for other markets or you know um, other business opportunities. I mean, we may de facto have a, a kind of decoupling, at least in that area. But whether it's a you know kind of we're at a at a historical turning point and that we've gone off this path uh, in a sort of fundamental and permanent way, I, I still think the jury's out on that.
0: Okay, and do you have any sense of where where Congress is on this? As well, because clearly there's a, a voice there that will chime in or not chime in um, with respect to this path, this potential new pathway.
1: Yeah, no, there's definitely, I'd say, fair to say, a bipartisan uh, consensus in Congress, particularly in the Senate, that China poses real uh, strategic uh, risks and threats to the United States. And that we need to be much tougher in our approach. Although uh, after that, it starts to break down in terms of how to go about being tougher. A lot of discomfort about the tactics of broad-based tariffs and uh, even you know other elements of decoupling that we just talked about. Uh, but I think a, a, a firm view, that a firm, almost consensus, I'd say, about the analysis of the. Of the, of the fact that we are now in a strategic competition with China, maybe have been for some time, and that that uh, competition has some very dark sides to it. It's not just a, a friendly competition where we're all trying to better ourselves by running faster, but where we're actually in some sort of um, uh, risk uh, from that competition. And so we need to respond to that. How we respond to it, as I say, very different views. Um, whether we impose tariffs, whether we invest in industrial policy and rebuilding our own strength and trying to run faster ourselves or try to slow China down, uh, very different views on on all of that. And I think that's where the debate really is going to play out most in a most interesting way here over the next few months and years.
0: And And I take it this has little or – very little to do with let's say the the array of folks in the g20 this is this is really a much more u s focused kind of um, policy making
1: well i don't know I mean I think a lot of um, other uh, countries in the g20 feel some of the same discomfort with uh, today's china um, a China that is that is both big enough to be disruptive even if it just carries on with its patterns of of behavior of the past 30 or 40 years. I mean, uh, it's one thing if, if China were a small country that were occasionally violating the WTO, but if you have a country that's the second largest in the world that is uh, routinely and massively sort of subsidizing its its industries and stealing technology and uh, closing its market. I mean, that's a problem for everyone, not just for the United States. And so, I think there's a lot of shared concern on the diagnosis side about the problem, but then a lot, even more discomfort about some of the responses and tactics being used than 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 in the U.S. Senate. Um, and you know, the other thing that pulls others in in the G20 is that. A lot of people here in Washington, pretty much all of us analysts and and many others, always include in our sort of early talking points when we talk about these issues that the only way we're going to solve the China challenge is if we work with our allies and partners because we can't do this alone. We're just not – uh, big or formidable enough, um, despite all of our strengths and form- formidable elements, uh, to take on this by ourselves. So we need allies and partners aligned with us. So um, I think that's the other reason that uh, G twenty other G twenty countries are implicated in this, even if they're discomforted or uncomfortable with the the approach or tactics being taken by the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, you know, I was. And to end it, that seems to me to be an odd you know kind of reflection if they if the administration or some of the folks close into the president really want to go down a different route i was particularly struck for instance on the attack on vietnam and i'm thinking well you know all these value chains if they're coming out of china wouldn't vietnam be the obvious place you might want to put them and yet there's a major attack on vietnam so it just there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of consistency. Right. No,
1: this. consistency is not exactly a hallmark of this administration's approach on these issues. And I think, um, I think it is, um, you know, routinely pointed out that if we're really going to take on China, we have to, uh, again, we have to, stop attacking our allies and partners and in fact on the contrary start trying to bring them in and and align with us in taking on some of these real shared concerns about as i say the role of the state in the marketplace subsidies industrial policies technology transfer policies market access issues i mean there's a long bill of particulars here that i think a lot of our allies and partners uh share and and would join us in if we were if we were smart about it yeah
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank you uh, very much f- uh, for taking the time uh, to, to do this with me, Matt, and uh, appreciate, appreciate it a great deal since you have such insight into the G20 issues, as well as obviously the United States itself. Thank
1: you, Alan. I enjoyed
0: it. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, And the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.